Well, a question for you. When you think of a personal hero, who comes to mind? When you think of a personal hero, who comes to mind? Maybe it's a, a parent or a grandparent. And I was thinking about this uh, again this morning. I was thinking that there's a, I've got a collection of some, some past birthday cards and, and whatever else that my, you know, my, my parents wrote to me or my, my grandparents sent me from over the years. And, and I didn't keep all of them. I've, you know, I've worked really hard to uh, purge some of those things from time to time. And uh, not as, maybe not as much as I could or should, but, but there's some of them that, that stand out. Uh, that I've got in a, in a drawer or, or, you know, I've got some books that I took on, on youth trips or missions trips where at, at the end of the time we kind of all, all signed each other's things and, and some messages from, you know, some really uh, influential spiritual parents to me from over the years. Guys, uh, especially in my case, I guess there's, I can think of a few, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, a few youth leaders and pastors who saw something in me and called it out. Uh, even when I couldn't see it, who, who saw through the mess of high school Sean and said, you know what, God's, God's not done with this one yet. We're going to pour into him. We're going to pray for him. We're going to call the good out of him. And I've kept those things. And so when I think of, of, of some heroes, you know, you're maybe reluctant to put that title on a person, but some really influential people, I, I have a list of names that pop up. But maybe, maybe when you think of a hero, it's, it's an influential person uh, you know, in your field, what you did as a career, or, or just a, a, in, in an interest group. Man, the, the, the guys that climbed the best are this. I would, it'd be amazing to, to get with them, or, you know, it'd be really cool to, to sit down with Da Vinci and talk about his creativity and his painting and his inventions and whatever. Maybe it's, you know, some, some preacher from the past or, or some uh, world leader from centuries and centuries ago. Hopefully, with all of this, you've, you've got a couple names in mind. Now, if those names in mind have, have passed on, if they're not with us anymore, imagine today after the service, you get home, or if you are home, you head up to the kitchen for lunch, and on the table is a letter addressed to you from that hero. You don't know how you got it. You don't know how this works. The analogy breaks down as often they do, but we're not sure how we've broken the time-space continuum, but I get home and there's a letter saying, Dear Sean, and signed Leonardo da Vinci on the bottom. And you open that thing and he's like, Sean, I just want to talk to you about these things. Let me tell you about painting the Mona Lisa. Let me tell you about the helicopter. Let me tell you about whatever it was. How would you feel to find that letter on the kitchen table? How, how excited would you be when it's, when it's written right to you? Well, as we get into our passage today, as we wrap up John chapter 17, that's kind of what we have in front of us. We have a letter from Jesus in the form of a prayer. And this prayer that he offers up right near the end of his life, he prays for you and he prays for me. We've looked at uh, earlier in 17, John 17, we, we looked at Jesus pray to the Father and say, glorify me and help me get back to the glory I shared with you before. And, and we saw him pray for the disciples last week. He said, sanctify them by your truth. Send them out so that they would draw more people to you. Set them apart for your mission. And now he turns and he's actually talking to us. So these verses, I think, are, 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 are important for us for, for this reason. 
Sometimes we can look at chapter 17, verse 20, and read it as just sort of a transitional verse. Okay, Jesus is done praying to the Father. He's done praying for the disciples. So now, because he's an eloquent speaker, he throws in verse 20, and now he's praying for something else. But look at what it says. I don't ask for these only, he's talking about his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus hasn't just moved on to the next point of his prayer. He's expanded the scope of who he's praying for. He's turned his attention from the disciples, which is who he's talking about when he says these. I don't ask for these only. I'm I'm done praying for the disciples now. But he's praying for those who will believe. That's us. Every single one of us who believes in Jesus today, can trace our spiritual heritage, our spiritual lineage, our our spiritual family tree back to this group and this prayer. Three billion plus people today can trace their lineage back to this moment in history, this prayer. It's amazing. And he prays for those who would believe through their words, through the disciples' words. Again, that's us. Jesus is handing over his mission to the disciples here. He said to them already, he said, I've got to go. You'll carry on. I'll be with you in the Spirit. I'll send the Spirit. He's handing over his mission, the reason he came to reveal God to people. He's handing that over to the disciples and to the disciples that they make and to the disciples that they make and to the disciples that they make and, 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 and here we are to the disciples that we make. Jesus' mission was to come and reveal the Father to his world, to the world, to make his name known, to call the world into relationship with him and his part is almost done at this moment. It's now on the disciples to carry it forward. Jesus has prayed they'd be set apart and kept for their mission, and now he prays that the coming generations would be ones that that keep on showing the world what eternal life is, as Jesus described it earlier in chapter 3, to know the one true God and Jesus Christ who he sent. Jesus prays for us. And so, as Jesus, knowing his hour has come, he told us that last week, with the weight of the world on his shoulders, knowing the cross is in front of him, that he's going to carry the sin of the world to the cross in a matter of hours, what does he pray? Because this should be really important. He doesn't just, uh, he, he doesn't just deal in light things here. These are the last words. These are, this is the importantest, most important prayer. That's the real word. What does he pray? May they all be one. Jesus prays for unity among those who believe him. Of course, this has been a running theme through the gospel and especially this final discourse. Remember back in chapter 13, they they met for supper and Jesus washed the disciples' feet and they're like, what are you doing? Jesus shouldn't be doing this. And he said to them, they will know you're my followers because of your what? Your love for who? One another. Then he said, the the rallying cry for the church is that Jesus is the way, the truth, the only one, and the life. 
And now he's praying that the church, this new community that he's forming around him, that he's handing over the reins of to the disciples, that they would be one even as the Father and the Son are one. So, if Jesus' prayer for us, the thing he wants to pray for us, this is kind of the highest of the high prayers, if he prays for unity among the church, what does that look like? Well, first, let's talk about what it's not. Unity is not compromising the truth. Just a couple of verses earlier, in verse 17, Jesus has said, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. He said, set apart the disciples by your truth. So now he's not going to say, well, actually just get along and we'll see what we can do with that truth. Obviously, it still applies here. The truth is important. D.A. Carson wrote this, unity is not achieved by hunting enthusiastically for the lowest common theological denominator, but by common adherence to the apostolic gospel, to what Jesus said. Now, there is a time and a place in our relationships to look for that lowest common denominator. I would say, especially as you're speaking to people who don't yet know Jesus, you have to kind of find some, some, some unifying thoughts or, or some, some, something you can gather around. You know, we're Oilers fans, so let's start there. And then uh, let's talk about, you know, Jesus somehow. We, we both believe this about life, that we, we should have this, whatever it might be. We start at that, that lowest common denominator. But within the church, it's not about finding the least, the easiest statement of faith so that we can all agree. It's not that. It's about clinging to Jesus his person, his work, what he taught, his mission, we hang on to that. And I realize that's really easy to say and harder to define. But I would suggest that's one of the reasons through church history we have so many of these uh, church creeds that have been passed on. One of the things that I've been inspired to do recently is to, to look and kind of dig into these a little bit more. You know, what, what, what is all the, the weight and emphasis behind the, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. And, and there are some of these statements in Paul's letters that are thought to be church creeds from 10 years after the crucifixion. The goal of them was always to set out this statement of faith that they could unify around. What do we believe? What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means you hold to this standard of who he is, what he's done, what he said, what he taught, and we live that out. As Carson says, we're not just trying to find the lowest possible threshold we can all agree on and then begrudgingly move forward from there. Jesus isn't praying for a unity based on our personal opinions of who God is either. Well, I think Jesus is just a guy who, who came. He's a good teacher, maybe a good guru. He had some good thoughts. He's talked a lot about love. He told me not to judge, so I don't have to judge, and don't judge me. Well, that's an opinion not also saying, well, Jesus is rigid and all these things, and we don't break any of these rules. We believe in Jesus through the word of his disciples through Scripture. And we believe what God revealed about Jesus in the Bible. A little bit later, John, who wrote this gospel, we're going to look at a couple spots in his letters to the churches later. He would, wrote this. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship, may have unity with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. In some sense, he got this. He's writing about this early church. They had this. 
They understood it. See, our, our unity with one another and with the Father began when we heard the truth about God, but it also continues because of that truth. An example of this, on any given Sunday, look around the room. Especially if you consider, you know, what, we've got a couple of services. There's a few other good churches in town in the Bow Valley as well. We consider who's watching online as well. When I look around the room, Couple services a Sunday. I see who's logged in a little bit online. I see the chat. I see who's liking our social media stuff. And there are people from all kinds of different backgrounds, different ages and stages, different careers, people with wildly different interests and hobbies and passions and stories. And there is no reason at all for any of you to gather around here and hear me speak unless it's about hearing the truth about Jesus as revealed in his word. That's the thing we gather around. It's Jesus as revealed by God in his word. So unity is not compromising on that. Kind of on the flip side a little bit, not quite the flip side, but unity is also not outlawing diversity. If you've ever watched any sort of... uh, war movie or military documentary, I'm sure that you can picture in your mind just like the entire army marching in front of whoever, a general, right? They're all dressed the same. They all have the same haircut. Somehow their feet like move in uniform as they march. You can't tell where one body ends and the next one starts. They're just one glob of people moving together. And sometimes when we hear unity in the church, maybe our minds drift towards that. They might not go to that extreme, hopefully, but they drift towards that. Okay, we've all got to dress this way. We've all got to think this way. We've all got to do this thing. We're just waiting for the order to come down from on high, from the pastor or the elders or whoever, and we go do it without thinking because he's the pastor, they're the elders. We just do that. But much like we said last week, unity is not the same as uniformity. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. I do not want you all to look like me or talk like me or act like me or think like me or dress like me or any of these things. That's not good for anyone. And let me suggest that striving for uniformity in a church is one of the most disunifying things we can do. And we want the unity. Because when we strive for uniformity, that we all look the same and think the same and do the same, I think we're actually denying the reality of the Spirit's unique unique gifting in each one of us. Let me read a couple passages to show you why I think that. 1 Corinthians 12, 4. These all happen to be from Paul. We could find other writers that say the same thing. 1 Corinthians 12. There are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Lots of gifts, lots of way to serve, lots of things we can be doing, but it's all pointing back to Jesus. You don't want me serving in all the ways that everyone else serves. And humbly, honestly, I don't want you serving in every way that everyone else serves either, right? We have to find the right seats on the bus for everyone. Ephesians 4, 11, Paul says, he gave, the, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers. Teachers are not apostles. Prophets are not shepherds. They're different. They're different giftings. They, they use those gifts in different ways. Romans 12, 6 to 8, Paul again writes, 
having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. If it's prophecy, then use it in proportion to your faith. If it's service, use it in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts or encourages in their encouragement, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Those are different things, and yes, we may all be able to do all of them a little bit, but some people are really good at encouraging others, and other people are less good. So I want to grow in my exhortation, sure, but I'm also going to stay in my lane and do what God has gifted me to as well. And there is a beauty in this diversity that's unified in making Jesus' name known in a number of different ways. So unity is not compromising the truth, and it's embracing our diversity, our unique strengths and skill sets. And it's also maybe maybe most importantly, it's being in a shared relationship with Jesus. This unity that Jesus prays for and calls us into is a unity of relationship. Look at all the relational language in verses 21 to 23. Jesus prays this for us so that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. That's relational language. A little bit later, he says, The glory you've given me, I've given to them, so that they may be one, even as we are one. And then in verse 23, he prays that they may become perfectly one. This unity within this new community that Jesus is, is, is launching as he goes to the cross and, and, and empowers the disciples to carry this on, it comes from us receiving a new identity as those who are in Christ. It comes from being swallowed up into the fellowship with God himself and his son and his spirit, and it's rooted in our relationship with Jesus. Pastor Matt Carter helpfully adds, the father and son are distinct persons, but they are eternally one in essence. They're different, but they're unified. We are brought into relationship with them through faith. We are placed in Christ, and the spirit of Christ comes to live in us. By virtue of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, we enter into a deep, abiding, never-ending relationship with the Father, Son, and Spirit. That's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus didn't come to live a perfect life, to reveal the Father to us, and then die on a cross just so we could live forever. Although that's part of it, isn't it? He died on the cross to deal with the consequences of our sin that have caused that I'm going to give away your last song, Vern, sorry, that have created that chasm between the Father and us so that we can be brought back into relationship with him. And it's part of being in this relationship that actually enables it to happen, starting now and continuing into eternity. So just as God the Father and Jesus the Son are distinguishable and yet perfectly unified, by the Spirit's work, we too, though different, with different gifts, different backgrounds, different preferences and pasts, we are united in and through Christ. Now, talk about easy to say, hard to do. Does this always work out this way? No, of course not. We, we know that. It didn't take long before the early churches had disagreements and, and conflict and disunity. And so Paul actually wrote a letter to the church at Philippi addressing this, and here's his wise advice, uh, a passage that 
probably I need to memorize, maybe you do too, to hold it nice and close. He says this, Make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with one another, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish trying to impress others, but be humble thinking of others as better than yourself. And don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Here's his advice. Don't fight, don't argue, but instead be humble and be unified. Think about any or all or the most recent kind of relational conflict in your life. If I think about mine, how much of that tension comes, if we're honest, from me being selfish, trying to impress others? It's in our marriages, it's in our friendships, it's in our relationships with others, selfish. How much of the tension in my relations come from me thinking of myself as better than others? I've got this title. I deserve to have someone do this other job for me. I, I, I've got this degree. I've got these letters behind my name. I've, I've retired, darn it. Someone else can do that. Whatever it might be, right? How much of the conflict comes from looking out for our own interests and not considering the interests of others? Great, Paul. Thanks. That's really easy. How do we do this? Well, verse 5, he tells us, in order to do this, you must have or you must adopt the same attitude that Jesus had. If you're familiar with this passage, you know that Paul goes on to describe Jesus stepping out of heaven, the glory of heaven, coming down to earth, taking on flesh, walking the world, the, the planet, the, the, the first century as a, as a Jewish person, as a servant, going to the cross and dying a criminal's death for us. Paul's point is this, the only way to draw closer to one another, the only way to grow in unity as followers of Jesus is to become more like Jesus. So our unity is based in and empowered by Jesus alone. So we've talked about uh, what this unity looks like, what it doesn't look like, but why is this so important to Jesus? Remember, these are like last, last words. These last few chapters are last words, but these are the end of the last words. These, this is his, his last, potentially his last prayer for us. It's right near the ending hours of his life, and he chooses to, to, to pray this for us. So why is this so important? Well, let me suggest that Jesus doesn't ask for unity just so that we can tolerate one another in a room for an hour on Sunday and then go back about our days. But look what it says in the text. May they be one so that the world might believe that you sent me. May the church be one so that the world, and remember, when, when John uses the world, he's talking about those who are opposed to Jesus, who don't know God, who are, who are living in darkness rather than light, to use another one of John's metaphors. He says, so that those who don't yet know who are in darkness, who are like sheep without a shepherd, who, who don't know who I am, who you are, who don't get it yet. May they be unified so that the world may know that you sent me and I love them. That's a high call. That's a significant consequence to our ability to be unified as his church, isn't it? This prayer of Jesus is, is more than just a call to getting along. 
but it's a call to unity, and it's also a call and a mandate to mission. When we're drawn into relationship with Jesus, and we live with the Father, and the Spirit lives in us, we're not just sort of um, now a part of the family that gets invited to the cabin in the summer to sit around the campfire and, and maybe ride on the boat, or we don't just get invited to Christmas dinner. Without, it's not that that we're called into. We are, we are now drawn into the mission. We are now those sent ones. We are to take up the mission that was God's and was Jesus when he came, the reason he came, and carry on with that. And fortunately, they've told us what that was. Flip back in your Bibles to John 3, 16. Maybe you don't need to flip back in your Bibles. You might know this one. John 3, 16 and 17. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. And then here we read in this prayer, may they be unified so that the world will know that I've come and that I love them. We're tied right back here, aren't we? The Father and Son are united in their desire to rescue sinners from death and bring them to life, and that mission has been given to us. Let me ask this. When Jesus says this prayer, when Jesus says that the world looks at harmony within the church, and by that they will decide if they want to follow Jesus, in light of that, how important are the things we disagree about? I know that many of us have grown up in or around church, and, and you've probably heard, hopefully, jokes about churches that were locked in heated debates about how long a pew we should buy and what color the carpet should be. And I think even just saying that, we know that those aren't always jokes. There's been conflicts in the church about music styles and which instruments we should use and which ones we shouldn't use and which hymnal we should which, which version of the Bible we should use. Like, conflicts. And then don't get me started on the last year and a half or so. Conflicts around how do we deal with, with COVID and what's our responsibility to, to the government and to God and where do those mesh and meet and how do we deal with this? Jesus says that the world looks at our unity and will decide if they believe in him or not. Now, that's not always the case. Jesus can do whatever he wants. The Holy Spirit can speak through any number of ways. But in this text, Jesus says this. Now, I don't think anybody wants more disagreement and conflict in their lives. If they're not a part of a church, if they're thinking about it and looking in and they come to visit on a Sunday morning maybe and happen to you know, stumble in on a Sunday where we're having a congregational meeting, why would they want to be a part of something that just adds more disagreement to their lives? They get that at work. They get that at school. They get that in their families. There's, there's plenty of ways where we can take part in as much conflict as we want. Why would anybody want to add that by joining a church that's not to say we don't wrestle with things. Remember, uh, unity is not uh, lowering the standard of truth. But our unity with Christ 
And our unity in Christ spills into our unity with his mission, which should make so many of the distractions just kind of fade into the background as we think, does a 15-foot pew or a 20-foot pew glorify Jesus more? Who cares? Let's just make space for people to hear about Jesus. I don't think we're buying pews for the new building, are we, Mike? I got to know in the back. Okay. Right? Oh, the focus is seeing people rescued from their sin and brought into this family, brought into the light of Jesus' glorious grace. Unity within the church is such a powerful witness to the world. And this real unity, it is a supernatural work, and it points to Jesus alive in us. Thomas Manton um, some time ago said, divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. That one stopped me short on the page when I read it this week. Another pastor puts it this way, the effectiveness of the church's evangelism, how well they tell people about Jesus, and people accept that, is devastated by dissension and disputes among its members. The effectiveness of our evangelism is devastated by dissension and disputes among ourselves, our members. And I would guess we all have a sense that that's true, and maybe we've even seen it to be true. That some of the, the conflicts we share in and amongst ourselves have pushed people away. Heaven help us and Jesus forgive us. But the good news is the opposite is true. Sure, division breeds atheism. Sure, dissension and disputes uh, devastate our evangelistic methods. But a unified church, it displays the powerful, life-giving, life-changing work of Jesus. And our unity in mission shows actually that Jesus did come and walk this earth as the one who was sent by God, who would die on the cross to pay for our sins, and the church becomes a visible display of the goodness of God, and we show his glory to the world around us. Jesus, continuing to do a good work in us so that the world may come to believe and know that you love them. On his way to the cross, Jesus stopped, and he prayed that believers for generations and generations and generations would be united in him. But then there's one last thing he prays for here in these last couple of verses of chapter 17. Jesus prays that his followers, these disciples, us as well, would be reunited with him. The unity we can have with Jesus now is a beautiful thing, but it pales in comparison to, to what we will experience spending all eternity in his presence. And Jesus prays here that, that we would see his glory, the glory that he had before the creation of the world that he had to set aside to come and walk among us. And we can get a taste of that now, for sure. There's something about uh, unity among the body of believers that just, that just points us to something so much better than ourselves, or so much greater than ourselves. At the opportunity, um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, a friend of mine, his wife was was driving through town to, to, to a wedding out in Banff and, and their car was making a funny sound. And, and so he called me and said, Sean, are there any garages open? It's Saturday morning. Any garages open in town? And no, Canadian Tire, you can try there, I guess. And he says, there's just something rubbing on her car. I can't get out there. He's in Calgary. She's here, stranded, trying to make to the way. And so I said, listen, I'll, I'll go. I'll take a look. I'm not a mechanic. I'm not going to do anything, but let me at least look at it and see what. 
So I put on my coat, I run over there, it's raining, there's puddles, I crawl on the ground and get under this little civic, which is nice and low to the ground, and, and it, it's, it's just a little guard. You know, a little, a little rivet on the guard has, has come loose, and when she was going fast enough, the thing would, would, the air would push it down, it would drag on the ground. It was metal, and, sh- and it sounded like metal dragging on the ground. So I happened, to, I happened to grab some zip strips when I left the garage. Uh, this is my mechanical ability. Because I'd had the same thing happen on, on my golf years ago, and I just I'd get the piece of plastic back up, and it's fine until you can get it to the shop. So I crawl under there, I zip it up, and get back, and, and send her on her way. And then I, I called him back and said, this is what it was. Here's, have this looked at sometime. It's probably fine for now. And they're trying to get out of town later that week. They were flying to, to South Africa. They're there now. They, just, they don't need this, right? Who needs car trouble? And he says, man, I haven't seen you in two years, three years, whatever it was. Uh, his brother and I were friends from a long time back. And he's like, man, the, the body of believers, the body of Christ is just a beautiful thing, right? Like this, we, 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 we're family because of, Jesus, and of course, I'll, if I have the time and the ability, I can come down, I'll zip strip something and send her on her way and drive her home if I have, whatever, right? We get a taste of this glory now, this unity within the church in such small ways now, simple things like zip stripping a car back together. That sounds worse than what I did. Then uh, <laughs> we might have to edit that out. But someday we'll be in the presence of his divine splendor. John Calvin describes the difference this way. At that time, the disciples, when the disciples were with Jesus, they saw his glory as someone shut up in the dark, sees a feeble glimmer of light through the small cracks. Picture yourself in in an old barn or something, and it's dark. All the lights are out in the barn, but the the sun's out, and it's just kind of coming through the cracks in the wood. You can see just a hint of light, and so you're sort of walking towards the light. He goes on and says, but Christ now wants them. This is the prayer that we'd be reunited with Christ. Christ wants them to go on and enjoy the brightness of heaven. And one day, on that day when we get to go be with him, the the doors of that proverbial barn will be flung open and we'll be standing in the light, in the glory of God. The Apostle John, again, in one of his letters to the church later, he wrote, Dear friends, we we are already God's children but he has not yet shown us what it will be like when Christ appears. They had some of this unity. He saw amazing things. They were a part of this thing. He said, but we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as, we really, as he really is. We'll get there, and it will be amazing. Someday, we will stand before Jesus and see him as he really is. As great as it is to gather on a Sunday morning and sing praises to our Lord, someday we will stand in front of him and sing those praises to him. We will be brought into the home that he's promised that he's gone ahead to prepare, one where there's no more pain, no more tears, and where everything sad has come untrue. And on that day, we will find ourselves in a home where we will forever experience perfect and complete harmony and unity because it's the Father's house. Joni Erickson Tata tells a story about a little boy named Jeff. If you know her, she's uh, quadriplegic. Um, and so she was a part of a, a, like a family retreat for families with kids with disabilities or had been impacted by disabilities. And at the end of this uh, five-day retreat, they kind of had one last gathering, and they kind of did the open mic thing. They passed the mic around to just have people share, you know, how, what has it meant to be together for this time? You know, how has is, how is this time been used for you? What's, what's, maybe what's God done in your life, and how have these relationships helped? What, what fun have you had? All these sorts of things. Uh, and little freckle-faced, red-haired Jeff raised his hand, 
And she says, we were excited to hear what Jeff was going to say because, because Jeff had kind of captured the hearts of so many people at this retreat, and, and now he, had, he, he, had, he was ready to step up and say just what a great week he'd had. And he steps up to the microphone, puts it right to his mouth, and he says, let's go home. <laughs> and later his mother said, came and sort of clarified the comment and said, how Jeff's dad couldn't come this week because he had to work. And Jeff really misses his dad, and he just wanted to go home to be with his daddy. Someday we'll all get to go home. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, we will forever enjoy the love and presence of God. Now, the church today, this can be a little taste of that. When a group of people with different preferences and backgrounds and hobbies and jobs and genders and ethnicities and accents and tastes and loves, and they love one another with that otherworldly love given to us by Jesus and empowered by the Holy Spirit, we actually kind of open the crack, open the curtain towards heaven just a little bit. And people have the opportunity to encounter God. And will people, when people see his love displayed in a million little ways, they will hope it's real. And then as Jesus prays, when that hope is confirmed, they will understand that it's true. And they will get to know the Jesus who came, the Jesus who loves. Let me pray, and then uh, Vernon and Idella are going to lead us in a song, and we'll take communion together as well. Jesus, thank you for your word, for this text, for this opportunity we have to gather together. I know that, uh, that we and then I haven't always done a great job at fostering unity. And yet here it is, this, this high calling, this high prayer. I pray that you would um, challenge and convict our hearts, uh, help us to, to, to search our own hearts, to consider where we're harboring things that we need to deal with, maybe to let go relationships that we need to go mend and fix, things that are getting in the way of unity within your church. And Jesus, we look forward to that day where we get to be in your presence, experiencing you face to face. I thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.